and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Joining me today, action movie correspondent, or is he? We'll have to see if he takes a mask off. It's Daniel Ema. Daniel, what's going on? Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> and also joining me for our second time on this podcast, talking about Mission Impossible movies, but the first time in five years. I hope he hasn't let any sentient AIs get out of his uh, computer lately. It's Fred Cobb. Fred, what's going on? Uh, not much. Not much. I'm currently in cruise control, you might say. Not uh, <laughs> you love to see it. Yes, I, I see. I see. I see something was done there. Uh, so, yes, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One is the long awaited uh, follow up to in the Mission Impossible franchise to 2018's uh, Mission Impossible Fallout, a.k.a. the weekend that MoviePass died, though MoviePass is actually kind of back now. Just a very big deal. Tom Cruise coming off of uh, Top Gun Maverick last year. Everyone was uh, very much awaiting this one. And uh Starts off with a submarine accidentally shooting itself, thanks to some AI that also known as the entity that we'll want learn a lot more about. A lot of people want to control this entity. And there's a MacGuffin involving this entity that's the key that has two components. And Ethan has to go track it down from Ilsa Faust, who's his accomplice from the last two movies. And uh, in, in an attempt to like kind of, kind of control this thing and get a hold of it before it can fall into the wrong hands, uh, they have to, you know, go on a globetrotting mission as one does in this movie. It kind of takes him into contact with a pickpocketer played by Haley Atwell, a kind of shady other figure from his past played by Isai, played by Isai Morales. And we also get Vanessa Kirby's White Widow back, uh, as, as well as Simon Pegg's Benji and Big Rames' Luther, who are uh, his accomplishments in all these movies now. And uh, got some other uh, so, some other supporting characters uh, coming back that we'll talk about. Out, including uh, Henry Zerny's uh, Eugene Kittredge, the director of the IMF and CIA, and uh, Shea Wiggum joins the crew, as does uh, Carrie Ellis, amongst others. So, uh, Fred, I think we both really, really loved Fallout. I think it might have been in my top five movies of that year. Uh, obviously, we did the podcast on it. We've been waiting for this one for a while. There's been a ton of anticipation, basically ever since, I believe, late 2020, when the audio leaked of Tom Cruise is yelling at everyone to like try and get this thing right, because all of movies was like depending on them to get it right. And they were shooting it under COVID protocol. So this thing has been like very, very highly awaited. So I got to ask, I'm just going to keep it broad for a second. And I want to know, what was this worth the wait for you? Did it live up to the hype? No. But there was absolutely no way it was going to. Mm. I mean, it had been five years since the previous one came out. Tom Cruise had a huge hit with Top Gun Maverick last summer, obviously. Sort of the big one that resurrected movie theaters, uh, made well over a billion dollars at the global box office. So this was almost more of a follow-up to Top Gun Maverick now than to Mission Impossible Fallout, where people wanted to see him do the exact same thing again this summer they did it last summer, like literally bringing back cinema from the brink of death. Uh, and I don't think any movie can really live up to those kinds of expectations. Now, I will say, I still think it was a really good action movie. I had a good time with it. Uh, had some issues that I think we'll have plenty of time to talk about during this podcast. Thought it wasn't as good as Fallout. Don't think it was as good as Ghost Protocol, but it still has a lot going for itself. But thing is, when you have five movie, five years to work on a single movie... Obviously, you expect everything to be perfectly figured out because you have that much time to work with. And I don't really think that that can be set for this. Especially because like, I'd say Fallout was, Fallout was almost like damn near perfect in that they only had like a three-year break in between movies for that one. Uh, I, I have fairly complicated feelings about this one, though. I, I really, really enjoy my theater experience, and I'll kind of get into where my feelings are a little bit more complicated after I go to Daniel. Daniel, I don't think you're as big of a fan of this franchise necessarily as Fred and I were. Though I believe you came away from this one like 
honestly pretty disappointed from what I've seen so far. I'm curious, like, what is the biggest reason why this one might have even fallen flatter for you than some of the others, which you're probably just cooler on than a lot of other people who might love certain ones that you're just you, you could give or take? Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of this series, truthfully. Yeah, I, I'm not going to run through the entire series, but, mm-hmm. you know, especially da- this da- last... Daniel, Daniel stands two above all else. <laughs> you know, I saw two actually j- just today. I saw two and three today before I saw <laughs> seven for the second time. And they, they all vary in, they all have their flaws, but I, I, I do ultimately still generally like most of these movies or at least respect them. And with this one, uh, like Fred said, like it's coming in with like heavy expectations. Now Tom Cruise is the president of movies. He's the guy mm-hmm. who saved cinema. Uh, Fallout's considered one of the greatest action movies of all time, not by me. And, you know, <laughs> no movie can meet those expectations. It my, even me myself came in with a bit more goodwill going in because this year has been so dire when it comes to our blockbuster action movies last time i was on this podcast yeah yeah, last time i was on this podcast it was for the flash so you know i was (laughs) before that and before that it was for fast 10 yeah so i was in the mood for some real grounded cinema and it's tough man because this movie didn't work for me it has the exact same flaws that i have seen with previous films but it also sort of removes the stuff that i did like and even the stuff here that does work is compromised by some of the uh choices that were made in the production of this film so i yeah not a fan this is for me the well okay now that i've seen the second film this isn't the first bad mission impossible but it is the worst of them uh i truthfully i i don't like this i don't i i even will put this below something like fast x Hmm, interesting wow uh, before I get into like this, all the specifics with you as to why, I guess what I'll say is that like I saw this with my grandma and my uh, parents, and you know I think I have like my grandma is known to fall asleep in movies far shorter than this one. I get a little lost and like kind of get, lose interest a little bit. She gets a little lost in the pot, and I I sat at my we, we had a funny laugh after the movie because I I kind of ratted out my mom who made me uh, encourage me to sit next to my grandma mainly because she didn't want my grandma asking her questions the whole time, but she didn't even have to tell me that. I knew that was why she was doing it. But I, I told my grandma that after, and so we all had like a little bit of a, a family like kind of uproar in the car about that <laughs> on the way back. But I told my grandma before we started because I knew what my mom was doing when she sat me next to her, and I said, "Nana, don't try and understand the plot. I, if you put a gun to my head after uh, most of these other movies, I, I, I probably couldn't explain the plot. Don't get caught up in it. Just enjoy the action scenes." And uh, my and my grandma had a great time. Didn't go to the bathroom once. Didn't fall asleep once. And I think that 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 this scores a lot of points in my book. It, it was the same test that Elvis passed. That's why Elvis got over the hill for me a little bit, even though like I didn't like it anywhere near as much as you and Joe did. I do like that. I do like it when you report back on what your grandma <laughs> thought of a movie because I'm like, okay, if it if it passes that test, then maybe there's something there. Yeah, and I and I say all that to say, I'm, I guess I'll start with you, Fred. I'm like. I mean, I, yeah, I think it gets bonus points if it just has a plot that like totally tracks 100% and is totally clear. But how how much are you able to like kind of just separate any kind of like plot mechanics or plot armor or movie magic that like, you know, maybe this thing, one thing here, this one thing here doesn't make sense. Or you can't remember why they were doing that one thing like three countries ago. Like how much of that stuff really even matters to you when you're watching this versus how much of it do you just want to like have your face melted off by some awesome action? Yeah, that's a very tricky one to answer because the big accusation that is always thrown around for these movies, and I don't think that that's how it actually works in reality, but the suggestion is always out there that they write the action scene for action scenes first, that Tom Cruise comes up with all of those crazy stunts, 
And it's only then that they really come up with a plot to sort of explain all of those and why those action scenes are there. They say the same thing about the past movies. They they do, but I put the bar a little bit higher for Mission Impossible because of the people who are involved. I think it's reasonable to have expectations that at the very least the plot is coherent, that it makes sense, and that the writing doesn't sound like it was written by an AI, which is especially (laughs) ironic in this movie because (laughs) artificial intelligence plays such a major role. I will say, as I said, I thought it was a good movie. I really enjoyed the action, but I really do need to make this point. The exposition was absolutely abysmal in this movie, to the point where during the first 20 minutes, I was just sitting there thinking, just stop talking. Just really, we need to have less dialogue and we just need to get back to a car chase or some kind of fight scene because what's happening here just just isn't cool. Like you're really just not getting me invested at all on what the plot of this movie is going to be because you just have a bunch of random intelligence guys sitting in a room together explaining to us what this entity is. And it honestly didn't sound any more compelling than a video game cutscene. And I know Hmm. this sounds incredibly harsh, but I really do want to make this point that the movie was at serious risk during the first 20 minutes or so before they get to that airport scene in Abu Dhabi where it kind of started to redeem itself of actually losing me right away. And it never quite got over that hurdle where every single time characters actually slowed down. It's the same issue during that nightclub scene where characters just have conversations that don't sound like actual human beings talk. And the Mission Impossible franchise has always had that problem to an extent. But in this particular movie, it was especially egregious. And when you've had this much time to perfect your script, that is inexcusable. Let me ask you about that, but also then the uh, the, 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 so that first scene that you're, I'm sure you're referring to when you're talking about exposition, but also that nightclub scene. I don't know if this is something you guys thought about as you were watching it, but I feel like I've seen a lot of people say like, oh, you could tell the influence that the COVID restraints had on these parts of the movie where a lot of these people might not even been in the same room. And it's just mm. like kind of like cutting from person to person in close-ups and snippets of dialogue here or there, and it's hard to follow. I don't know if that's something you guys thought about, but like that might have been like one of the limitations that a lot of people are picking up on because there's like a, a very notable COVID production. But I, I, I guess my question then, Daniel, whether it be that or something else, like, I mean, was there a way around that this problem that Fred is talking about in your opinion? Is there a version of this movie that is a, where the bad guy is an AI that works without a bunch of exposition explaining how that would even work in practice. Well, see, you've opened with, I think, my biggest issue with the movie, honestly, Mm. is, look, I'm not a huge narrative guy when it comes to action movies, right? They're action movies. You know, you just, you evoke a mood, you allow for the actors, the performers to, you know, have fun with their roles or whatever. Like, you know, it, it is kind of fluff. And these are fluffy airy sort of action films uh the mission impossible series and it's not like you know i have a i really do like the bond movies you know i couldn't tell you what happens in most of them you know what i mean like it's tough to follow you know it's, it, they're they're often faced chasing some MacGuffin that you know doesn't really matter that much and that's been true of most of the mission impossible movies but here i think that's magnified like a thousandfold uh like fred said every exposition scene is so dense it is so dense it is just well we need the key to go find the thing and then the entity is this thing and the entity is god and then gabriel is here who is the sort of human face of this ai threat who i assume we'll get into a little bit in a moment it's just every time the movie slows down it ends up being a bunch of people in a room talking vagaries at each other and it just fred said that it almost lost him it did sort of lose me and it continued to lose me the moment everybody got into one room and started talking to each other nothing feels like it really matters because they're all talking about plot they're not talking about like emotion 
or you know uh, uh, what they all mean to each other really like it is mostly just but just plot details that everyone's explaining to each other well so what i'll say first is that like i kind of noticed the exposition it was happening i don't think it bothered me as much as it bothered you guys maybe it was partially because i i was in like a theater with a lot of with family and then this other strangers that were just like all enjoying it so much and i maybe got caught up in that and didn't get bogged down in like certain moments like that and i just was one action scene got me through the next exposition thing scenes like because i was on a high until i got to the next one so my my theater experience is almost like perfect aside from a couple of story points i'll get to one thing that like i did think oh wow this is really interesting i wish they would have done more with it was like when it gets to the point where Haley atwell's character uh her name is grace when it gets to a point in the movie where she has to like make a choice, her options are limited and they're like, Hey, you might just have to join the IMF and do, do things with us. Cause you don't, you can't really go back to life as a pedestrian. Like you're, you got too big of a target on your back. And they started like kind of going down, like explaining to her what, what that meant and what the implications were of that and what the consequences were of that. And I found that actually really interesting. Cause like we just only see these guys when they're like on their missions, but can you actually imagine Ethan Hunt like having a life? Or even like these other guys having a life, they're, they're at, the, at this point in the movie, they're like, this is kind of what we chose. It's like, oh, I, I'm kind of curious to see like how someone feels about like having to actually make that choice. We kind of, I mean, one of the problems in this movie, in my opinion, is that we have these allusions to like Ethan before that and what pushed him into the life in the first place. But we don't really know exactly what toll that takes on someone personally, because these movies aren't really that concerned with something else, which is why it would be nice if they like decided to take a left turn and be a little bit more about that. And it was almost kind of going to be about that with grace, but it just didn't really have time to fully go there. And that was just one part of the movie. I thought, Oh, this is something different that I'm kind of intrigued by, but I don't know if the movie actually had that much of an interest in exploring that. I actually had a question Yeah, because you guys are, you have more an affinity for this series as a whole. Do you guys like these characters? Huh? Like just, you know, through the movies, do you do you like the characters? Because something I've been thinking about a lot is comparing this series to Bond, where there's so many colorful figures. You have like henchmen that show up like Jaws or Oddball, or you have like the, you know, the various Bond girls or the various incarnations of M and Bond himself. You know, even if the plots are kind of mercurial. Uh, you know, you have these characters and these performances to ground everything in. And I've never really felt that watching this series as much as, you know, I have enjoyed some of these performances, especially like in the early films. But um, so what, where are you guys at with like Ethan Hunt hmm. and uh, what's his name? The blonde guy from <laughs> Shaun of the Dead. I'm Simon Pegg. Simon Sunday. Pegg and Benji, yeah, yeah. all them. Benji, what do you what do you think about this cast of characters? Fred, do you have any feelings about them as people? So that's an interesting one because I feel like Tom Cruise gets away with just his force of personality a lot of times because this movie really makes it clear we know very little about Ethan Hunt and who he is. And even though we get a few hints in this movie about what drove him into this career in the first place, they never fully elaborate on it. Something I assume they'll do in the sequel, but. It's surprising that we've been with this character for 30 years now and we know almost nothing about him, like what motivates him, what his past is. He's really just a guy who keeps on accepting missions. And I think it's a credit to Cruz that he managed to build a protagonist around such a vague background. But yeah, I think Daniel is right. You have a lot of other characters in the Bond franchise to compensate for that. And mentioning Simon Peck's character, Benji specifically... He was kind of the comic relief when he was first introduced in Mission Impossible 3, but that's no longer really the case because now he's a very serious member of the team. He has a strong skill set, obviously, that he keeps using. He's kind of lost that a little bit. So now a lot of these characters have lost their individuality a little bit. Like Luther, for example, too. 
I think he was definitely a stronger defined character in the early movies. And now because, especially in this movie, you have so many people, I think, who get rotated through. You don't really have a lot of time for that anymore. Which I think gets to, I think, another big issue I have with this film in particular. What puts it, sets apart from the other films is that, I mean, like we said, Tom Cruise now president of movies. This movie assumes a sort of self-importance. Like the tone of it is that this is like a big like epic where like everything they do is as important, the most important thing in the world, which granted is everything that these characters have ever done or like the most important thing in the world. But whereas, you know, I was watching Mission Impossible 2 and, you know, you've got those John Woo-isms and Tom Cruise is kind of like a roguish figure uh, or like three where he's like the family man or even in like, the last one, which I wasn't a huge fan of, as mercurial as that character of Ethan Hunt is, he's allowed to have fun. He has those comic beats and those rhythms. And here, I, that's all sort of missing because everything has to be dour and important. You get moments with, like, I think especially Haley Atwell, where she gets to be very, very charming. And when they first meet, there's kind of a flirtatious energy there that really does work. But eventually things have to get serious uh you have uh what's her name palm i don't know how to pronounce her last Kevin name kevanjif well uh, I, uh, I, I, I thought it was clementif clementif yes it's clementif okay so palm clementif uh who's playing this kind of relatively silent assassin and she's got a cool look to her a cool vibe to her um and vanessa kirby i i can't help i really like her and everything i've seen her in but like i, I like her but i don't understand why she's in this movie besides yeah, well, yeah. just, besides just to be charming and yeah, agreed fun. agreed but you know at least she's allowed to be charming and fun everyone else is sort of just playing things super duper serious and i just it, it doesn't allow the in for the characters like we said like the dialogue scenes in the previous films at the very least were like watching these characters kind of bounce off each other or these at least these actors bounce off each other and here they're saddled with just you know exposition dumps there, there, there are a few like light-hearted moments in this like i think it, like when the mass machine breaks that's kind of funny like when they are like wait how are we gonna do this and or or when like when Benji is like directing Ethan prior to the prior to the jump off the cliff, like they're kind of bickering at each other. Like there are moments that they get to have like some comic relief here and there, but you're right. It feels even more sparse uh, than it does in, in the earlier movies. But I mean, I, that's nothing new with Ethan. Like it's, it's, it goes back to Tom Cruise really kind of playing just an action movie cipher for the last several years and not like, you know, doing a whole lot of just regular acting. And I, so I, I just, I guess I just wasn't that put off by that. Cause that's what I've kind of come to expect. As long as he delivers on the action sequences, I'm not going to like be too bitter about him, like not being like the most likable fun presence, especially when they, they hurdle a low bar that they've set for themselves in that regard, when they do have him like even having oh, the slightest bit of like a flirtation with, uh, with grace, uh, which I mean, we'll get into what that means with like, uh, or, or whatever they, they are trying to imply with his relationship with Ilsa, in the prior movies, but like, you know, I, I don't think you ever even saw him be quite ever be that lighthearted with her as he was with grace at certain parts of this movie. And it, some of the stuff in the car chase scene was like kind of funny. So they had some moments like that and that's more than I expect to get out of Ethan specifically, but I don't disagree that like, I was like almost taken aback in some ways by like how Benji and Luther like seem more serious throughout. But like I said, I, I wanted them to do a little more with that anyway, but like we can talk about the villain some too, but like, 
your, your head just now went to Bond. I, I couldn't help just because it might just be like proximity to when we saw it. I couldn't help but think about the John Wick movies as I'm watching this because that feels like an even uh, get a, a contemporary to this franchise in a different way. And that they've released more movies in recent years than Bond has. And I think they're operating at a higher level than Bond has in the last couple of movies. Just all those different characters that popped in and around in John Wick 4, they, they popped off the screen a lot more than like a lot of the other people they brought into this one. Like I, oh gosh, I, I almost wish, wish that Gabriel had not been in this movie. Um, just like they do so little with Isai Morales. And it's like, I would have rather you just like been like, just been like, Hey, AI trying to take over the world, watch them do some cool shit to stop it. Instead of like, you know, trying to make me think that this Gabriel guy was like the least bit compelling, but he just wasn't. And, you know, and then you look at like John Wick four and it's like, I, I, I don't think you were actually that if I remember correctly, Daniel, I don't remember you actually being super like into the Bill, Bill Skarsgård performance there, but like, damn, he just like that, 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 that may as well be like Marlon Brando and the Godfather compared to what Isai Morales was doing here. Oh, yeah, you know? for sure. For and sure. it's like, they, they just had a lot more, they, they just every single, when you think of every single character that popped in in John Wick four at some point, they, all, all of them popped more than anyone that was brought into this one, except for maybe Haley Atwell, you know, I mean, it's provided you were already thought Vanessa Kirby was going to be fun. And like, man, I love Shea Wiggum, but it's like, they didn't give Shea Wiggum much to do, but then like run into every scene kind of late and just yell, you know, Shea Wiggum is doing exactly what he does in pretty much everything he's ever appeared in, which is to say, make everything marginally better, you know, <laughs> well, like I mean, yeah, I, I'm so happy to see him. Shea Wiggum does think more than make most things marginally better, but he wasn't given enough to do more than that here, you know? Yeah. So. So what I was going to say, what I did like about Ethan Hunt in this particular movie is that there yeah. is a very clear line throughout the movie where you're getting the sense that because he keeps assuming so many responsibilities and carries the weight of the world on his shoulders, um, that he starts to miss stuff. Like, he isn't always perfect. Like, there's that scene at the airport, for example, where they don't even tell him about the nuclear bomb that's about to go off because he's doing so much other shit. And then he has like mm. 20 seconds to figure it out. And you get that panic response, right? Because it's his responsibility to really make everything all right. And now he doesn't have time to do that anymore. The fact that he failed to save Elsa, for example, that he's basically going up against an AI that he's essentially powerless to fight against because it's so good at predicting his every move that he just fails to save somebody he really cares about. Um, he keeps getting outwit outwitted by Haley Atwell during that car chase. And at the police station as well, and even at the airport in Abu Dhabi. There mm -hmm. are a few moments in the movie where Ethan Hunt just genuinely just makes shit up as he goes along and doesn't really seem like the guy with the plan anymore. And I do think that's an interesting position for him to be in because for the past six movies, he was always this like super cool, like super competent guy who like really put, again, the whole weight of the world on his shoulders. And he was usually pretty successful at it. And this time is really where you start seeing cracks and where he starts getting things wrong. And in part, that's because his own past seems to come back to haunt him a little bit in the form of Kittredge being back in this movie, but also because Tom Cruise is getting a little older, like he's not the youngest guy anymore. So there is a little bit of an attempt here to show us maybe, maybe just maybe Ethan Hunt is actually losing his edge. And I thought that was an interesting place for the movie to go. He's still great at running, though. <laughs> I think that that's an interesting interpretation. I don't know that I subscribe to it simply because I think that from the jump, the Ethan Hunt character, just by the nature of these sorts of narratives, is often caught on the back foot. I was watching two and three today and often like, I mean, three opens with him at the mercy of uh, what's his name? Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman Two, he's often like being outwitted, you know, by the villain of that one who is very anonymous. So I, 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 I like that interpretation, though. I just don't know that I necessarily subscribe to it. But talking about that A.I., though. What did you all think of that? Like I said, as the movie is going on, I wasn't that 
bothered by it. I, 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 well, with, with, with the tacit acknowledgement that like, yeah, I'd rather you get a villain performance that's on the level of like whatever Philip, what, what Philip Seymour Hoffman is doing in three. Yeah. That's, that's the ideal, but like, you know, I'd almost like rather, I, like I said, the Gabriel thing didn't do much for me, but he wasn't really on screen a ton for like the first two hours anyway. So it's like, all right, like I, 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 I can just kind of put this AI out of sight, out of mind. I know it's controlling stuff and they're just going to go try and do stuff. And it, it, it was whatever. Like, I mean, I don't, and then, but then the more I started thinking about it, I'm like, well, so like, if you try and think too hard about how it's literally controlling everything, like it did it really like have to, could it really actually ensure that Ilsa or grace dies? I don't really know if that makes total sense if you think about it for too long. Uh, but it, it is what it is. Like I, in the moment, like I was able to enjoy the action scenes without like thinking too hard about it. But if you think too hard about it, I don't know if it's like really the best choice for a villain. I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Fred? Yeah, that's tricky because I don't know. I feel like this franchise has never been especially well defined by its villains. I mean, you have Philip Seymour Hoffman in the third movie, and that's obviously the standout because he's Philip Seymour Hoffman. But but I just feel for the most part, I don't even remember who the villain in Mission Impossible 2 was, to be totally honest with you. Um, I saw it a couple hours ago. I couldn't tell you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, don't, don't really have a strong recollection of the villain in Ghost Protocol. I know it was the guy who played the Russian mobster in John Wick, uh, Michael Nyquist. Uh, but I couldn't tell you what his motivations were or what his background was whatsoever. Uh, and even Sean Harris, who I thought was a pretty charismatic villain in Rogue Nation, was seriously underused in uh, Fallout because Henry Cavill ended up taking over the role of the villain in that one, kind of. But but even then, I, I just don't know if that's necessarily the best place for these movies to go, because ultimately, I think the inspiration, at least initially, for these movies was always Tom Clancy, Hunt for Red October, Three Days of the Condor, John Le Carré to a certain extent. And then, of course, they kept upping themselves and upping themselves. But you still always have that mix of nostalgic spy fiction and state-of-the-art action. You even have it to an extent here still, um, that whole chase through Rome uh, with... Uh, Ethan and Grace, I would say two of the movies that it very strongly evokes are The Born Identity, which is a very similar car chase and like a small, I believe, even yellow car. <laughs> and, and Fast X. And, and, well, Fast X, but the other one I was going to bring up is Tomorrow Never Dies, where you have Pierce Brosnan and Michelle Yeoh handcuffed to each other doing the motorcycle chase through the city. Mm. Oh, yeah. So, I, didn't even, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Right. So you can very clearly tell that there is still an attempt here to pay tribute to an extent. I don't know if they were thinking about that actively, but these guys obviously know their action movies. And those are two of the bigger ones of the past 30 years. So I do think that there's still an attempt here to cash in on that nostalgia a little bit because they want to blend those two together. But now that you're using artificial intelligence as a villain, the obvious comparison is the Terminator. I don't really know if that's really the direction those movies want to go in because then you set yourself up for a whole different kind of brand of filmmaking that I don't really think Mission Impossible is well positioned to represent. I think thematically it does sort of work in the sense that again, Tom Cruise is a guy who, you know, he loves his to shoot on film, although this one was shot on digital. He's a big fan of practicality. He doesn't like the use of CG for like these big heavy stunt sequences. Thematically, it does sort of make sense for him to kind of position AI as this big villain, um, you know, artificiality as a villain versus like this franchise that so touts itself, so prides itself in doing things for real, being a real cinematic experience. I don't think it necessarily ends up working simply because the manner in which it's explored here, at least, is just through a lot of exposition about how game-changing this is and 
how it's going to change everything. I've seen a lot of people give it some sort of credit because of the current, you know, we've been talking about AI pretty much all year and its ability to sort of displace workers, especially yeah. within I mean, entertainment. Well, before that became a talk. Correct. About, correct. And like, you know, time, yeah, if you, that's my problem is that if you give this movie credit for, you know, our current AI stuff, you might as well give credit to like, I don't know, iRobot. And like, I don't know, any sort of uh, Terminator, any artificial, it's, it's just enough. kind of, yeah, it's just part of the course of these sorts of films. So I don't think it's really well utilized in this movie, which I, I keep on, we keep on kind of almost talking about this. So I just want to bring up the fact that this is a part one. Um, and to me, it feels like so much of what it's sort of building toward. Like, it feels like this movie is sort of a, a three hour prelude to another three hour movie because of so much of it is kind of laying the groundwork for how important this is, why it's important, trying to sell the idea that, you know, Gabriel is this important figure to Ethan's past. And it's, it's gesturing toward these ideas, but nothing ever really is, is sold to us uh, outside of those action set pieces. Well, it's funny. You're talking about being a prelude to the next movie. Like, I think, do you think they made a mistake by like with the, by what they made the first scene in this movie? Because doesn't it just like telegraph that the big scene in the next movie is going to be like Tom Cruise learning to hold his breath for six minutes so he can go like retrieve the AI in like a, some crazy <laughs> underwater action scene? Like, we already know what it's going to be now because of how they decided they had to start this movie and they needed to have the submarine be a setting for that as opposed to something they discovered in the next movie. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. But, I, but I like that opening scene. I thought okay, it really yeah. established what the artificial intelligence was capable of doing. And I thought it was some really nice shorthand to see, oh, so it can make that submarine appear on their radar, even though it's not actually there. It can take the torpedo and turn it back around on them. I thought that was actually a pretty riveting scene where you have that moment where they're mm-hmm. relieved that they made it out alive. And then all of a sudden the tables are turned on them and the whole thing just blows up. I, I thought it was a pretty good way of establishing what the threat is and what it's capable of. It did really feel like a like something out of like a 90s action movie. It felt like something out of the Hunt for Red October, which, yeah. you know, truthfully, the 90s studio action style, not really my bag. But like, you know, it, it, again, a puddle turns into an oasis in the desert. Like I appreciated that scene, although I do feel like this movie and this is an issue I've had with a lot of the Mission Impossible movies. They don't really have to me a distinct like personality like in the same way that like you point to bond and you i I, t- I say classic bond movie and you immediately think of those the costumes and the sort of art deco like production uh and like you know you have an image of what that is you hear the music and i mean you hear the music here because of the you know, mission possible theme but like this these movies don't necessarily have that same sort of energy to them even like when they were switching directors Like it would feel like Diet De Palma or Diet uh, John Woo. And, you know, now that we have, you know, kind of the same production team for the last like three or four of these, uh, they start to feel like, I don't know, far less distinct, like distinct entities within, you know, their own, like within the ecosystem of cinema today. We kind of we kind of glazed over the. The, the car chase for a minute there. And I mean, we were, we're half an hour, more than half an hour into this. We haven't really talked about the action at all. And I'm curious, I'm sure, like, I'm sure you just weren't super high on it, Daniel. And that like, you just weren't high on the movie. If you've been high on the action, you would have been, I'm wondering with that first scene, was there, was, was it able to ratchet up the intensity in a way? Nothing else, nothing else in the film did for you, I guess is what I would say. Cause it just seems like they really did go out for a lot of these set pieces. And I get that, like, 
I guess why I'm curious about it is because like I feel like in some some action movies that you might like, you know, not be as high on because you're comparing it to maybe some different level of fight choreography and hand to hand combat. But like I feel like these movies are aspiring to a different kind of action. So I'm wondering like what 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 you were kind of hoping to get out of this that you didn't when it came to the action. Well, you know, of course, I, I, I like a good fight scene, but, you know, I know that these aren't movies you know, with fight scenes. I, I don't just right. like action. I don't, I don't just like martial arts action movies. I like action movies. I know, but you're like so much more well-versed than us in that kind of stuff. So, and I, so I feel like you're often like coming at it from perspective where you like, you really know what the good stuff is. Um, yeah. So, so my problem, I guess I'm not a huge fan of like mission impossible action. I think it gets a little bit overhyped. I think that, you know, the standards of Western studio action are so low that uh yeah they do sort of stand out within that ecosystem but um but that being said i do have like respect for like you know the penchant for like you know big stunts and i i do like most of the action in these movies generally here though i think that there's just a general failure in like either building toward the action or telling a story through the action mm. one of the reasons that i love fight choreography specifically um, a fight, an action set piece that's all martial arts fighting is that it's, I think, easier to build a sort of a personality. It's easier to, you know, use movement to express character, get into the rhythm of like a story through a fight scene versus other action set pieces. But, you know, just generally speaking, an action set piece, I I feel should be like its own little short film within a movie. I think that the film around it, it should either it should complement the film around it and the film around it should complement the action. And here I don't I think there's a bit of a, a disconnect there. So uh firstly there's there's honestly considering how long this movie is, there is very little action, actual action. Like there are the scenes around them where like they're in Rome, right? And uh that's the, the I think the longest actual bit of actual action when they're in the car and they're handcuffed and how are you going to drive a car and avoid all these people chasing you? while you're handcuffed and i like that conceit but what it ends up being is just a lot of shots of them driving around you know that it doesn't add any complications there's not real beats where you know the circumstances sort of change there is one where like after they go down the spanish steps like Tom is like, you know, in the car, like it won't start and she's going to run them over and they're in this little Fiat. Haley Atwell is going crazy because like she doesn't she's she's not prepared for any of this. She's just doing wheelies all around her while you watch as this big car is trying to start to go run them over. And it's a funny beat. And it's a little it's exciting because like you have that tension of when is that car going to start? And I like that. But everything before it tends it is mostly just driving around the the streets of Rome. If they weren't handcuffed, it would look probably the exact same. Well, we we, we touched on earlier. Did you did 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 any of the the comedic beats they were going for in those moments do anything for you? Yeah, they did. Uh it's just that it's a three hour long movie. And like I said, like when you when you're building so much up to the action, like that scene is, I don't know, like a half hour. 40 minutes into the actual movie, then that's the first genuine action scene. Like, you know, the, you have the airport thing, but that's more a suspenseful sort of chase thing. And even then, not not really. So and then you get like, you know, the uh, that that scene in Venice where half of it is just Tom shots of Tom Cruise running. Running, Yeah, <laughs> you get like two fight scenes, one of which is actually I, I quite respect the one in the hallway 
uh, where it's so, so narrow and you have this narrow field of view and it's, it's, the camera is jittery and shaky. I think it's kind of using like some kind of like stabilization or something like that. I'm not a camera guy, but like it, it's a very unique look. Wait, are, and, you, are, are you are you talking about the one with Tom and uh and henchmen? Yes, and henchmen on, uh, in the in the alley. Yeah. Okay. Yes, correct. And like I actually Tom I actually quite Tom liked it. This. Yes, it's very um dynamic. It's 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 claustrophobic. It has a feel and personality. But then the other one is like. You know, this one in the on a bridge, you know, uh, at one point it's um, uh, what's her name? Rebecca Ferguson with a cane sword, which I'm like, yeah, you're not doing yourself any favors compared, you know, considering the other fight scene with the cane sword uh, this year was in John Wick, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and you're not doing yourself any favors there because there, you know, as much as I, you know, I have my issues with the action direction of that film, but, um, you know, shooting it in mids. You know, where you see the whole body and you see that it's actually them doing the movement and the camera's not swishing around them in order to hide the fact that there's, you know, stuntmen, which is just what you're supposed to, you know, I'm not, I'm not faulting it. It's not bad necessarily, but it is, it's not great. Hmm. Um, And then the finale, like you have the big train scene, but honestly, the action doesn't actually start until Tom does the big stunt that we've all seen like dozens of times. If you go to the movie theater at all, you know, I've seen this, I've seen them break down how they did this scene and, you know, it's cool for that moment, but then it's over. And then you get like a, a, a chop train fight, which again, you know, it's, it's fine. It's shot. Well, they capture everything, but there's not a story being told, you know, there's not a rhythm be there where like you know there's a push-pull dynamic where one side gets the upper hand then the circumstances change and you know there's none of that really and then the finale the finally i'm sorry that i'm going in through all the action i apologize but there's only a little bit of it is the problem the one really stand out i really like this scene is the very last one where they're climbing through the trains as it's the train carriages as it's falling that is super fun it's it's comical in how long that it goes on. It introduces all these interesting sort of tense challenges. The, the actual environment around them is changing. and They're a part of the environment in a way that they're not with the other scenes. I actually really like that. It's just coming at the end of three fucking hours. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it is a long movie. I was going to say, is there something to be said for like, you know, the fact that Tom Cruise is older, maybe it doesn't need to be as nonstop action if you can get the big ones right. The, I don't know. The length just didn't like. I never felt it. Like I think you did. I guess is my, is whereas I came in differently from you. I suppose. Yeah, and like you know, I wouldn't be so hard on it if it weren't mm-hmm. for the fact that the exposition is so long, is so dreary, is so dour uh, that you know by the time you an action scene starts up i'm like primed for something really explosive and it just feels so underwhelming even compared to you know i I, like i said i'm not a huge huge fan of the action in the other movies but i mean they all blow this kind of out of the water well fred you 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 opened up talking about how the exposition bothered you so like and and i've already said how like i think that i mean every high i got from an action scene on in this movie like kind of got me through the expedition like did, did how did you feel about the action in this compared to like some of the other mission impossible movies that you really liked the most yeah, this was a bit of an interesting experience for me because the explosive action wasn't what i was really all that interested in by the end because ultimately the big action set piece for that purpose is the car chase 
and Daniel already mentioned this earlier, we had the one in Fast X earlier this summer in the exact same city. So that's not the movie's fault, to be clear. They were shot at very different times. I'm sure there was no overlap there whatsoever. That was just an unlucky coincidence. But you can compare it to the major European city chase they did in, in the previous Mission Impossible movie, which is Fallout. And I thought that was a better shot and a visually more interesting action scene. So what I keep coming back to is where they did a very good job is the scenes where they tried to build up the tension. So I actually had a very different experience with that airport scene because I enjoy a good bomb diffusion scene. We haven't really gotten a lot of those recently, and I'm a much bigger fan of 90s action than Daniel is. So something like Speed, for example, where that was a major plot point. I feel like we haven't really seen that in a long time where you don't necessarily have a bunch of people like fighting each other and explosions happening and shootouts happening in the airport. It's really just Ethan trying to have to dodge his pursuers while trying to track down the key, while Benji is busy trying to defuse the bomb and having to figure out the code by answering questions. And I thought that was an interesting way of doing that scene where you don't necessarily rely on, again, a whole bunch of carnage, but it's really just characters having to get a job done and trying to accomplish that over a certain period of time. I thought it was well done. I thought it was tense. Obviously, the bomb was never going to go off because it's a freaking nuclear device. And you have all of the major characters in the airport. So clearly that was never going to be a problem. But Daniel also mentioned earlier that one of the scenes he enjoyed was where you had the two characters in the car and you weren't sure when the car was going to turn back on. And this is kind of similar where, you know, of course the car is going to turn back on eventually because they're not going to get pancaked um, <laughs> by the big car coming at them. And it's the same thing here, but that is still a very well done scene. And I also agree what he said about the train scene at the very end, where normally you would maybe have them going over the edge on that destroyed bridge. And there's like one single train cart that they have to go through and then save themselves. But in this case, I think it's three or four that they actually have to make their way through. So yeah. the scene just keeps compounding and compounding and compounding. And it's visually interesting because there's something different happening in each cart. Uh, they have to make it through the kitchen cart, which obviously creates a whole bunch of problems because there's utensils flying around. There's some hot burning oil that they have to make their way through. Then they make it into the next cars and there are chairs and tables that they have to dodge. So there's something interesting happening in each scene. And it's almost 10 minutes long, I think. I think there's a piano at some point. Yeah, that was so yeah. fun. Yeah, that was genuinely <laughs> fun. Yeah, so that's the kind of stuff that I really enjoyed. Again, car chases, there are a dime a dozen. We've seen them a lot, especially in major European cities. Um, so I really enjoyed actually not the ones that were super like fast or explosive or necessarily action-driven, but tension-driven scenes. And the last tie-in that I want to make here is I think that's interesting because clearly this movie was in some ways intended to be a throwback to the very first Mission Impossible movie. Uh, you have Kittredge coming back. Uh, you have some camera work that's very similar. We have these like super close-ups of characters' faces where the top and the bottom of the face is almost a little bit cut off, which is something De Palma also did in the original Mission Impossible. And the original Mission Impossible movie also wasn't necessarily big action set pieces full of explosions. It was more about like solving 10 situations and trying to make get out of them alive. And I do think if that was intentional, which seems to be the case, given that you have a major character from the first Mission Impossible coming back, I think it did a pretty good job with those particular scenes. Well, so that, that, that was like one of my small holdups, aside from the big one, which I'll get to is like, I thought like the Kidridge reveal at the end wasn't great. It feel, I felt like oddly underplayed where it's like this whole movie is like building to who is here to buy the thing. And all of a sudden it's him. And then like, no one is really there to like have that register as like a big deal. And I thought that was, it was like an odd moment that like, I felt like I had almost missed something in the moment. Cause I was like, 
oh shit, isn't this kind of like a big deal? Like this guy goes way back with Ethan and now he's the one here that he's actually been chasing the whole movie. And it just like, like it just like moved on very fast. And I guess it's implied that like, that's going to be a big thing, part of the second movie, I guess. But it felt like, it felt like that, that moment should have landed more than it did. Just very quickly, that character yeah. also has history with Vanessa Kirby's character though, because mm. it's revealed in Fallout, I think, that her mom was Max, the arms dealer who, um, helped out Ethan in the very first movie. She was played by Vanessa. Redgrave. Right, right, right. And he, there's even a throwaway line in there where he says, like, I kept your mom out of prison and that's the deal we made and that's why you need to keep helping me now. And so that was a reference back to, again, something that happened in a movie 30 years ago <laughs> and you wouldn't necessarily remember if you hadn't seen the first movie recently. But still, it ties back some... It, it, it's nice that in a franchise that hasn't really treated its characters very well in terms of like building them up over 30 years, that there's at least a little bit of a throwback and some acknowledgement of things that happened in previous movies, because that hasn't always been the case. It's funny that you mentioned the, um, the fact that Kittredge is there because it gets to something I, I don't know has been talked about that much, but I, I and I, you know, I, I hate to do this woke take, but you know, all this talk about how the closeness that Hollywood has with the defense industry. You know, you've had people talking about how, like, you know, Marvel, you know, work closely with the Department of Defense and how it kind of reflects this sort of, um, you know, American superiority and all that. Like, I don't know, like that stuff uh, when it comes to like superhero movies, I think it's, it's, it's I think they're overselling it because those movies have no ideology. Like they they're just there they're beyond capitalism. But here. I think that the depiction of the security state is very, very curious in a way that like I, I never really felt with the other movies like they're like, you know, yeah, of course, they're intelligence officers they're They work with the CIA and stuff like ignore that. Here's some action set pieces. But because they spend so much time, you know, philosophizing about the the nature of this AI, not not that, not that it's particularly deep philosophizing, that would have been more interesting, but because they spend so much time on who should own something like this and whether anyone has the right to often like I mean, at one point, two of the uh, 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 Shea Wiggum with um, uh, what's his part? What's his name? Degas is talking about like, why was why has Ethan gone rogue this time? And uh, the, the 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 other guy, um, Shea Wiggum's partner is talking about like, you know, should anyone have this sort of power? Like maybe that's what Ethan is thinking. Was- and like, so, but then you get Kittredge actually buying it or trying to buy this thing. And like, for a moment, I'm like, okay, so he's like a villain, but it turns out he's, he's not really because, you know, he then accepts Haley Atwell as one of the new members of the IMF. Well, do we, do we know that, that, do we know that that is dispositive of anything though? I think it is, but like, yeah, he I, could still just be trying to keep his cover. Th- well, there's no cover here. Like, he's not like, uh, he, he's actually, I think it is, he's portrayed as what he says, he says he is. He's representing the US intelligence community who want that AI. They always have wanted that AI. That was the purpose for putting Ethan on the trail of this thing. Like, they haven't, and that's why, why, but, why, would, but, why, would, why wouldn't he tell Ethan though? Like, I guess because he thinks Ethan wants to destroy it, whereas he wants it. Well, no, he America. told him, no, he told him straight up, like, I want this thing. That's what you you are supposed to get this thing for us. And Ethan says no, which is why he's at odds with the IMF for this mission. Um, but at the same time, he's not portrayed as like a bad guy, just a guy who, you know, thinks that he can control this AI on behalf of his country, which gets to this sort of ideology that comes up a lot in these sorts of movies where like 
the security state is not inherently bad, but like, you know, you can't trust somebody with that power, but don't worry. These guys are good. They're just, they just don't understand that they can't control this power. You know, there's sort of an implicit sort of valorization of like, at least the intentions of the U.S. security state, which uh, I find a little, I think I find a little, I find a little questionable. Like I was watching the credits that first time and I saw at the end, you know, the Mission Impossible Paramount Pictures would like to think the Department of Defense. And I'm like, ah, yeah, of course. You I mean, I, I, mean we, you I mean, they work pretty closely with the military for Top Gun, too. Correct. So, I mean. yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's part of the course. I get it. But whereas I think I find it more insidious in something like this where like nominally it is just a fun action movie then in something like Top Gun where it's it is you know he's a navy pilot it is propaganda and we all know this going in I guess I didn't necessarily think Kittredge was like trying to take over the world but like I guess I didn't necessarily No see... no he's not but 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 like I, I I guess I didn't see it as like I guess I in the moment I didn't also I I also didn't necessarily read it as something where it's like any kind of implicit endorsement of whatever his motives were i just thought it was like it was odd that like they just threw him in there like that and i guess maybe he's not like maybe he's not like full bad but like it, it felt like it was something that like just the moment where he ended up there just felt like it it, it was it should have been a, it, it felt like it was supposed to be a bigger reveal than it was maybe and everyone kind of like underplayed it i don't know i, I just like if, if it felt like they were trying to squeeze a lot into that last half hour i suppose um, even before you get to the action scene, which I know you said took too long to get there for you anyway. I, I guess I wasn't sure what to make of it, but I, I, I think your, your ideas make sense there. And I didn't necessarily think they were t- asking us to like think he was up to total good just because he was there for the U.S. No, no, no. It's not that they think that he's up to total good. I'm not saying that they wanted to valorize him necessarily, oh, but, yeah, yeah. but the assumption is but, that, that he's going to do you, better stuff with it than the other people. Well, not, not even necessarily that. What I'm saying, though, is that. Uh, because he's not he's not a villain is the thing. He's not a villain. Um, he's a guy who's an opportunist. He works for this country and he wants to do everything he can to get his country on top. And that's treated as like a like, you know, because of that motivation, he wants this thing that no country should control, but he wants it. Another movie, like a movie with more of a, I don't know, with, with a bet that I would find a little more less morally egregious i'll say might play that sort of motivation as more villainous and that's not the case here it's portrayed as look he shouldn't have this thing but gosh darn it like he's still a man you can trust because <laughs> you know god damn it he loves his country um that is the implicit assumption it's not necessarily an argument that the film is trying to make it is just an assumption that it's making in pursuing the narrative that it does mm. It just goes to like just how kind of baseline conservative uh, most American media is. Any other feelings on that, Fred? Well, but at the same time, I feel like almost every single one of those movies where, again, Ethan Hunt is the hero has been about Ethan going against his government because he feels like the government isn't necessarily representing the best interests. I don't know, of the planet, of the people. Like, when has he ever been actually aligned with what his government wants? Yeah, he's always so, going. He's well, always yeah, going that's why. Well, and there's my thing is that like in the previous films, yeah, he, that's that's good. That's a good thing. And like his superiors are portrayed as like in the wrong. But like here, 
I don't know. Like, I, I don't I don't get that sense. I think partially also because uh, I think this guy, Kittredge, is also like the head of the CIA or something like that, which is yes, a wrinkle yeah. that I which is a wrinkle I don't think is in the other movies. Like, I, I, remember I just saw what's his name? Lawrence Fishburne in Mission Impossible three. He's the head of the IMF. Um, Anthony Hopkins in two head of the IMF here. He's playing like a dual role as head of the IMF and the CIA. And I think that wrinkle does make it a little more, a little more distasteful for me. Maybe I'm just being a huge lefty here. I don't know. Well, remember the last director of the IMF was played by Alec Baldwin. So that opens up a whole, whole <laughs> well, you know what they should, they should have brought him back. Uh, he was like my least favorite part of uh, rogue nation. Like that, that part. Oh of no, I like um, him. I like him. I mean, oh, I, God, no, what I, wrong, what wrong has Alec Baldwin done? Come on. <laughs> Well, there, there is something to be said for like, you know, he's always like going against the interests of the government. But like I one of the things I find the most tiring is like we're like we have to pay lip service to the idea that the government thinks he's up to like his motives are bad, where it's like, look, we know they're not like I, I'm tired <laughs> of like seeing people have to like spend so much wasted motion for on people trying to prove that Ethan Hunt like isn't like the good. It's guy. funny it's, that in it's, Fallout, it's, it's, it's like tiring. in Fallout, the villain actually just voices like, hey, this guy always goes. Oh, this guy keeps on almost going bad what if this time he actually went bad (laughs) come on um all right guys um ilsa dying like really pissed me off is it was that somewhere that like you thought that they uh that they they earned that choice fred or did did you think that like they could have they didn't go about doing that the right way because it really bothered me can i give you my honest opinion on that sure I'm not convinced that that was necessarily something they had in the script originally. I just think the shooting went on for so long that they started to conflict with Dune. Um, the fact that she has her own show Ooh. now in Silo. So I half suspect that it just got through. And, and a Dune spinoff show on HBO Max at some point, possibly? Maybe. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure, but apparently they're making another Dune movie now. And again, she is starring in her own TV show right now, um, which I'm sure was mm. also shot at some point during the pandemic, late pandemic, when they were still probably shooting scenes for this movie. So I have suspect that that might not have always been in the cards because you're right. It feels a little unceremonious almost. And I'm not necessarily sure that the movie kind of puts enough emotional weight on it because Ethan seems to be moving on from it very quickly, considering how much of a relationship we had with her. I have suspect that that wasn't something that they had in there originally. And then they kind of had to make it work because Rebecca Ferguson might just not have been available to them anymore. I have nothing to back that up. I have nothing to back that up with. That is just a suspicion I have just based on how it played out in the movie. They do have a history, though, of just, you know, like killing a lot of uh, Ethan's female, you know, companions uh, to further things along. So I wouldn't have put it past it to, to also be in their plans. But what you're saying does not seem impossible because Rebecca Ferguson has a lot going on, though. My thing wasn't even that like, oh, she, they've like built up her relationship so much with uh, Ethan that like I'm so invested in it. And like I, I, I don't like that they went there with it. It was more that like, you know, even if we're allegedly they have some kind of connection, you know, somewhat romantic here. It's not something that it's some, not something that was ever more than really implied in five and six. Uh, if if that and then they kind of went there a little more here. It was more like, God, I, I like her presence so much in these movies. And I think she's like she like she's a great action star in the movies. But like, I don't know if I actually know Ilsa that well. And it was kind of like, I mean, look, as, as long as they were going to keep keeping her around, I would have rather them just like continue to develop her instead. Like it feels like an unnecessary fridging because they kind of already like wanted to go there with 
the Gabriel's history with him where they're implying Gabriel killed someone that was close to Ethan. We don't really ever find out anything about that. So it's like, all right, we know Ethan's already being motivated here by whatever Gabriel did to this woman in his past. Why do we need to kill off another female character that like it, it, it is an enjoyable presence? I would have rather heard them just like written her out of the story and just had the option of coming back later. And it says, it feels like you're just like killing another female character just to like give this man more motivation than he doesn't really need. And that, that, and that, that just seemed like a lazy story choice to me. Uh, how did it strike you in the moment, Daniel? Well, it's funny that you say that I'm going to be real with you. I was watching like the flashback with the Morales killing that woman. And in my mm-hmm. head, I'm like, Oh, that's something from the first mission impossible that I forgot. <laughs> nope. That's just no, some stuff just that some they invented red. here. So it's, yeah, it's really weird that you have him killing uh, um, Rebecca Ferguson for, symmetry with an event that we have never don't witnessed. know anything yeah we we don't know anything about it uh there's a moment right before he does the big uh the big uh motorcycle jump where like you get like him his mind flashing to the three women that he's lost that lady that we've never met uh, <laughs> uh rebecca ferguson and maybe potentially the lady that he met like an hour ago you know, so like, I don't know, like it, 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 I think, speaks to just a general weakness in developing these characters as people that this series has had and that this movie specifically in nailing those emotional beats, because, again, it spends so much time just dourly going through exposition. If there's any if there's any truth in Fred's uh, theory about uh, Rebecca Ferguson's uh, schedule with everything else she has on her plate, then maybe this wouldn't have been possible. But I would have rather almost just not had Elsa in the movie at all and actually spend a little more time on this origin story. Not that I needed the Ethan Hunt origin story, but like I feel like that would have just been a better use of our time. So we would have like cared known a little bit more about Gabriel and felt more invested there and felt more invested in whatever this Ethan's origin story was here that pushed him into the IMF in the first place. He had had some kind of like was implicated or uh, had some kind of blood on his hands from uh, at least the, that was the perception of it after uh, after Gabriel killed this woman. And that kind of like made him make the choice as we come to learn as it is later. And it's like, I would have rather gotten just more context for that instead of just like these blurry allusions to this event that as Daniel realized, came to realize we knew nothing about. I would have rather just like actually spent time figuring that out instead of just like killing someone who was like, served an essential purpose in these last couple of movies and just didn't need to like serve, be, serve the purpose of being additional motivation for Ethan, which is just something that just happens all too much. in you know, in, in movies these days, just to like give a, give a, give a guy some, something else to fight for. And I, I just, I didn't need it to go there. And it, it just like, it left a, it, it left a bad taste in my mouth with how much else this movie had going on. I just felt like there were so many other things. Like you could have given Vanessa Kirby more screen time then. And you could have, like I said, done more with Ethan's backstory or, you know, maybe set up the AI stuff a little better. I, I I don't know. Like there is just so many other things you could do. And it just felt like one too many pot points to me. But I will say, so we don't end up mansplaining it too much. That was literally the very first thing Logan said to me too, when we walked out of the movie theater, that she just hates the fact how this franchise treats its female characters, that they keep getting killed off whenever it's kind of convenient and needs to happen to kind of push the main character to put push Ethan to take action again in some way, shape or form. I will say I found Haley Atwell to be a more enjoyable presence than Rebecca Ferguson in this movie specifically. And I don't know if I would say in general, because she's only really been in one movie and we haven't really found out enough about who that character mm-hmm. really is to say that. But but again, I found it to be incredibly charming in this movie. And as far as Vanessa Kirby is concerned, yeah, she isn't in it much, but she does have a very nice scene where Vanessa Kirby really has to play Haley Atwell being Vanessa Kirby. 
And yeah, that was fun. Yeah, that, that fun. comes with like some like comedic touches that are always kind of nice. Um, whenever one of these characters has to put on a mask and they're not really being themselves, but another person wearing that mask. And there's that little moment. Sorry, there's that little moment where like Vanessa Kirby like comes out as you know uh, uh, Haley Atwell, and the henchman is like, "You've changed." And her, she, <laughs> you see the beat that she takes in thinking up a response. She goes, "And you never will." If this movie had that energy throughout, I would be far more a fan. Uh, sorry for interrupting. The one last thing I will say about Haley Atwell is this is a total side note. Um, one of my favorite books of all time is The Pillars of the Earth. Uh, it's like a thousand pages long, uh, and it was turned into a miniseries in 2010. And I still remember the two protagonists in that book, Jack and Eliana. I was really excited about who they were going to cast for those two people. And they ended up picking two complete unknown actors that I'd never heard of, and I was super disappointed. Well, joke's on me. Now it's 2023. Those two people were Haley Atwell and Eddie Redmayne. So now, <laughs> and so what I'm really trying to say is I'm super excited how far she's come. Obviously, she's had a great career. It's good to see her in like a big franchise movie again. And also like really making the role her own in a big franchise movie because I feel like a lot of times these characters and actors and actresses tend to become very replaceable where really anybody could play that role. And I really appreciated that she really made the role her own. She was funny. She was enjoyable. And I'm glad that she's going to get a chance to keep expanding on the character in the sequel. I was also just like, I mean, I, I as upset as I am that they killed Ilsa, I don't disagree with you that like she was a more fun presence. They let her have fun and it was cool to see Haley Atwell get to do something like that because the only stuff I'd ever really seen her in before actually, aside from the Marvel stuff, was just random stuff she'd pop in here and there. And none of it was necessarily fun, you know? She has, and I, I did not see that miniseries, Fred, so I can't speak to what's in that. It wasn't a fun role either, but it was just like one of okay, the first like, big breakthroughs. Um, Right, but she's in like this movie that I actually randomly saw in the summer of 2015 called The Testament of Youth. It's oh, like a World yeah. War One drama with Alicia Vikander and like. Is I mean, that the one about like the suffragettes? No, that's a that's a different thing. But like, okay. uh, but yeah, T- Testament of Youth had like Alicia Vikander and her and like uh, Kit Harrington and Taryn Edgerton. Like it was. No, I did yeah. see that. Yeah, I did see that movie. I remember that. Huh? I, not great, but like it has all these people, you know, acting their ass off in service of like a World War One story. It. Um, it, I, I saw her in her like she had like she played like a teacher in Blinded by the Light, that movie about you know, Britain about the kid that like Springsteen. There's she's in like she has that Black Mirror episode, like just never seen her get to do anything fun. So it was cool to like see her just jump into this and like clearly like bring this kind of energy to it. And so I I, I really I really, res- I really respected that. And I I the, she was like one of the one of the highlights of the movie for me, along with like just the action set pieces themselves. And like I think the, the stuff like that that I just enjoy it. I think it just kind of like you know. Uh, it, 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 like, I, like I've said a few times now, it just it just did so much for me that I didn't like get hung up on some of the small stuff. I just got hung up on like one big death and, you know, uh, other random stuff here and there. And that's about it. Like, I guess I it's funny. I, I, I didn't necessarily expect to come into this like uh, before we before we, any of us saw the movie being the one that was the highest on it, though. I think I am. Um, oh, yeah, definitely, definitely higher than me. Yeah, one more quick compliment I want to pay Haley Atwell, by the way, because I just mm-hmm. double-checked her filmography. Uh, she was in the remake miniseries of Howard's End a few years ago, and I thought she did a better job in her role than Emma Thompson did in the original, and that is literally the role Emma Thompson won her Oscar for. So that wow. is, I think, a co- that is, I think, the best compliment I can pay her, because I thought she did much more with that role in the miniseries than it, in the original movie that came out in the 90s. So that is an aside. 
a recommendation that I would make to our listeners to go watch hey, that. Matthew McFadden of Succession, also in that, along with the other miniseries you were talking about earlier. What was it called? Pillars and... Pillars of the Earth, yep, uh, and how it's in. That's right, he is involved. Yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, good for him. Uh, Daniel, any other final thoughts on Mission Possible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1? Uh, yeah, not a not a big fan. <laughs> I, I do want to emphasize that, like, I don't know. I, I do think that a lot of this might be a lot of my issues might be resolved in the second film i really do think that this movie is kind of a holding pattern to get to the next one in the same way that uh what across the spider-verse i feel uh was kind of just plate spinning until you get to that third film all the stuff that is sort of hinted at in this film you know the history of ethan hunt and the role of ai in society like i think these things are going to be more at the forefront of the next one but like here there's just nothing to do except set up for that i hope that this next one doesn't have quite the same sort of self-serious air i hope there's a bit more action i hope that that action actually feels like it's telling a story um, versus the stuff that was here. But as it stands, yeah, this was a very, very big disappointment to me. It doesn't help that you can you have so many different movies that you could compare it to. You can look at John Wick and see how it does action and how it builds its world outside of those action scenes. You can look at Top Gun Maverick and see how it grapples with who Tom Cruise is as a movie star. And, you know, the this question of whether there's an irrelevancy to these people going out and doing things like practically you can look at no time to die and see how that sort of handles the character of the the the, the star of its franchise like better um and i would say even i you know i'm look i'm not huge we were we did that podcast i'm not huge on no time to die but i do think that it is a better sort of like swans a, a better handling of the character of bond than this is a handling of the character of ethan hunt and truthfully i think that i mean fast x god bless its soul it wants you to have fun it's not successful it's not as well made as well crafted as this movie but i think in its goal it is you, more you, can, successful. Uh, you can just have fun though if you watch kick watching kick-ass action without it being like funny you know i don't know like well yeah I think, but I like, think, the thing is that this, this is, is more fun this is so much this, this is more fun than fast x this is not kick-ass action though it's, it has kick-ass it's, set pieces. It's, they're not kick-ass set pieces. I would push back against that because, again, you get to like the you know a driving scene where it is there's a good conceit, a good kernel of an idea, and then it's not fully exploited. It ends up just being someone driving through another you know European city. We've seen that done before. You know, despite the wrinkle that it should add, that handcuffed aspect, you get to uh, this. That's train- cool. The train thing is cool. The train and, thing, it's just like, you know, Tom Cruise, yeah, he does the thing we've seen. You know, he flies through the air. He does the parachute thing. I mean, yeah, it's cool, but it's a moment. It's not a scene. It's not a story being told. It's not something being communicated. Uh, and the again, the, the stuff around it is not in support of it is also the issue. Because if we actually cared about the villain, if I cared about Isai Morales, maybe I would be more invested when they have a kind of like, you know, a kind of knife fight on the top of the train, you know, a fight that is not poorly made, poorly shot, but I also have no investment in their struggle. I also think that's hand. I also think that's handcuffed by them doing a part two. It's like they kind of had to hold. There's that back. too. Yeah. There's that too. Um, the fact that there is a part two, like I think does kind of handicap this movie 
in more ways than one. Uh, and yeah, it, it does show in the action. There's no investment going into the action set pieces. The action set pieces themselves are not building a narrative, which is, again, an issue that I even had when we were talking about John Wick 4. But I think even that film at least does better a better job in uh, at least showing you something new and at least showing you something interesting. Like, you know, there are look it, that movie doesn't have the beats within the action that like the third film of the John Wick series does. But it does have like, I don't know, a thing cool happening like, you know, he breaks out his nunchucks. And uh, starts using those in conjunction with a gun or something like that. And here, outside of that hallway fight scene uh, and that train set piece at the very, very end where they're going through the carriages, none of that here. Nothing unique, nothing to set it apart from any other big studio action film. And the movie around it is pretty drab also. Not a fan. I I, I I couldn't have guessed. Uh, Fred, uh, any final thoughts on Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1? What I do think is a good choice that they made and that I think a lesser movie would not have done is that they chose not to end it on a cliffhanger fast, like Fast X did. I like the fact that they actually finished off that train set piece. Again, a lesser movie I feel like would have ended on some situation where they were still in the train cars. The, the bridge danger. blow, yeah, the bridge blows. The bridge, bridge blows, blows exactly. they're looking at it. They're yeah. looking at it, yeah, cut to credits, yeah. And this movie didn't do that. It actually, like, made sure to finish off that set piece. The characters are obviously still confronting challenges that they'll have to address in the next movie. But at the very least, they're all kind of in, like, a settled spot right now, and they can move on to whatever they want to do in the second movie. And I think that kind of speaks to them taking the audience seriously in a way where everybody knows that there's going to be a part two. You don't need to end it on a massive cliffhanger to get people to come back and see it. Like it's kind of a standalone product in that way. Obviously it's not because clearly they are telling a two part story, but you don't just again, finish like in the middle of a scene and it feels like even more chopped up than it would have been otherwise. And I I think that was a strong choice. One thing I will say for me, um, we didn't talk about the scene at the Abu Dhabi airport that much. I actually really enjoyed it. I mean, yeah. I guess it's not like an action set piece in the traditional sense. So, so I was telling Daniel, oh, there's these actions, these has great action, there's great set pieces. Like, I guess in a way it's a set piece, but it's not really an action one. It's 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 one scene, but like, you know, I, I just I, I found that compelling in the way they kind of edited it together and cut it together and followed everyone around that airport. It was and it was just a, a cool different setting for something to happen in one of these movies as opposed to you know, a city or a desert. I actually did like that scene. I should say, like I said, like this movie is at its best when it, when it hints at like letting these characters kind of be fun. And there's that flirtatious air between Cruz and uh, Haley Atwell does kind of power things through. I like the bomb diffusing scene. Um, It's just not an action scene. You know, you still got to wait like another, like 20 minutes to get to one, but you know, like I, I, I did quite like that. Oh, I should say, there's one thing that I had to add, um, which, look, I get it. The guy saved movies. We all respect that he's 60 years old and he's doing the stuff that he does. But I don't know. Like a part of me, how, how do you all feel about this kind of like rebranding of Tom Cruise? Because, I mean? mean, the guy's still like, I don't know, like he's still got the C core, you know, doing slave labor to keep up his lifestyle stuff, right? Dude, we don't have, we don't have, we, we don't have two more hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But I think it should be said. That, you know, Tom Cruise still probably a monster, you know? Yeah, it's great that he's actually going out on a limb to, like, 
be a champion of this industry and all. But like, let's not lose sight of the fact that, you know, if I, we, think, I think you I think you just gave him another idea. He's going to like be walking out on a literal limb on the side of a mountain in the next movie. I mean, hey, he already did it in, in two. He starts off mountain climbing. True. Right. Right. I forgot. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's nowhere else for him to go other than like, I don't know, the bottom of the ocean, which we'll see in the next one. You know, some shady entities, you know, invest in sports for sports washing. You know, Tom Cruise just makes kick ass action movies to, you know, help people forget about his personal life. Um, there's like some weird, there's some, not to get too off on a tangent. There's some like odd stuff. If you like do some research on like the kids he and Nicole Kidman have together and like how like Scientology, like, you know, made that whole, all those relationships really iffy. Like, yeah, he, not the best personal life that guy is going on, but you know, um, I guess. God damn it. We need a champion. <laughs> we're, 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 all of us are going to keep go paying to see his movies. So, uh, who, who are we to really dwell too much on that? I guess. I mean, uh, we, uh no, we just... I think, I think we could stand to dwell on it a little bit. Like, I mean, if, if the guy's going to take on this role, if we're going to applaud him for it, like, I think, well, we well, should well, at least... well, I guess my, my point being, we're not exactly taking a moral stand against him, you know? So, no, I, not... I, I paid to see this movie twice. So, yes. you know, <laughs> there we go. I didn't even all like right. it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I appreciate your dedication to you as always. I wish I, 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 I probably would have, I, I would have done the same if I like still had a theater as convenient as yours is. Um, yeah. Daniel, any other, uh, any other, uh, anything else you've been watching recently? You want to shout out before we go? Well, I should say that, um, you know, I've recently begin, uh, begun writing for a uh, disappointment media, which is a. Oh yeah, you got something public... to plug. You got something else to plug too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been starting to write reviews. Been having a good time with it. I actually, the, 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 I haven't been watching that that much recently, but the one movie that I have seen recently that I really did enjoy and I really want to implore people to go see is Jericho Ridge, which what is, is a uh, very small, uh, low budget uh, thriller, a direct to video film. It's the directorial debut of Will Gilby. Will Gilby has worked extensively with his brother as like an editor and a writer and as uh, a second unit director. And he's been doing this thing for 20 years in all these different roles. And he finally gets his chance to helm a film, which is a sort of siege drama or siege thriller, I should say, where a police officer in a rural Washington uh, uh, town ends up kind of uh, having to defend the station from like an onslaught of, uh, of uh, armed assailants. And it's just, it beautifully uses the environment. It's like a one location sort of thriller, but it beautifully uses the environment. It has these great performances. It moves with such a commanding sort of pace and rhythm. Uh, the action that is there is genuinely really, I mean, it's better than anything here. I'll say that. Uh, definitely a better command of rhythm, definitely a better command of storytelling prowess. It's so impressive for, especially for a debut directorial credit. Um, really big fan of this one. I implore everyone to see it. It's <laughs> the thing is it is streaming on BET plus, but you can get a, uh, a free one week trial on Amazon prime if you want to go see it. And I do, I do implore you to do so because hopefully this guy ends up becoming like a director that everyone is taking notice of. And you can be in on the ground level. Jericho Ridge. Right. Fred, anything you've been watching recently you would like to direct us to? Uh, so first of all, I want to plug my favorite Tom Cruise movie in case anybody hasn't seen it yet. It's called Collateral, uh, directed by Michael Mann. Really good nighttime thriller starring uh, Cruise as a hitman. Uh, and Jamie Foxx as a cab driver in LA 
who keeps driving him around to his targets and a lot of interesting stuff happens with their dynamic obviously because uh, again he is a hitman and eventually Jamie Foxx kind of finds out what he's doing and they both become involved in this kind of conspiracy that's going on so very good very intense movie some, somehow Jamie Foxx got nominated for an Oscar for that and not Tom Cruise. Like, I feel like they both were worthy. Yeah, and interestingly enough, Jamie Foxx actually won that year because that was the same year that Ray came out. So mm-hmm. he had a really strong You know, I've game. never, I've ne- that's a movie I still haven't seen. Ray or Collateral? Collateral, well, both, but Collateral specifically. Yeah, watch Collateral. I'd be curious to see what you think. That's a really I good have one. seen, I, I did see, Um, you know, the bald guy from uh, John Wick 3? Mark Dacascus. Um oh, okay. he uh yeah, he um he did his own sort of like take on that sort of movie uh where like he's a hitman being driven around. It sucks. It was a piece of shit movie. Uh, sorry, continue. Yeah, so that's I don't know if it's streaming anywhere right now, but that's one I always like to give a bit of a shout out because it's it gets overlooked a bit in his filmography because especially looks now like it's on Paramount. It looks it looks like it's on Paramount Plus, like all the rest of the Mission Impossible movies. Okay, so no, they're not anymore. Oh, oh yeah, they're on HBO Max, right? Uh, I don't know, but they got taken down from Paramount Plus. I tried watching today. Uh, uh, yeah, I did. Oh, wait, and, uh, oh, I was trying to get my grandma to watch them last week because, like, she liked this one so much, and now she's gonna like get really confused when she goes on to the yeah, they on were her there iPad. Like, I spent two so much days ago. Two yeah. days ago, they were there. It's annoying. Okay, sorry, Fred. Did you have anything else you were gonna shout out? Yeah, I just want to make people aware. Uh, Good Omens, the second season, is coming out on Prime at the end of July. It's been a while since the first season came out. And there wasn't supposed to be a second season initially because it's based on a book by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. Terry Pratchett passed away a while ago, and apparently there was some agreements that they were never going to make a sequel or write a sequel um, since he wouldn't have any involvement in that since he passed away. Uh, But they are making a second season now, second season now with uh, Michael Sheen as an angel, David Tennant as a demon, and they have to partner up to prevent the end of the world. At least that was the plot of the first season. It's really funny, very enjoyable. Uh, it's got John Hamm as Archangel Gabriel, which is really funny. And um, yeah, second season is coming out uh, on Prime at the end of July. Highly recommend the first season if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, one of my favorite fantasy slash science fiction books of all time. And um, yeah, I'm glad that we're getting a second season of it. So I believe that comes out July 28th or July 29th on Prime. Good Omens season two. All right, interesting recommendation there. That I, I I'm not, I'm not super familiar with the that show. I've like I've seen like trailers for it and stuff, but it's never given it a shot. So good to know that it's something has your stamp of approval. Uh, funny enough, all seven seasons of the Mission Impossible TV show are on Paramount Plus, just not the movies anymore. Mm. Uh, I, I, I would I would I would say uh, uh, I caught up in the last week on uh, season three of the Righteous Gemstones. Uh, it's a it's a really really hilarious show they've like kind of up the absurdity to new levels in this season and made me laugh aloud probably more than i did in the first two seasons so uh watch that on max if you haven't it it it, it is it deserves your time if you want to you know just watch mega churches be, be spoofed and all the families that run them and all that uh fred uh where can people find you on letterbox and whatnot yes please do follow me on letterbox uh, you can just find me if you type in my name fred kolb f-r-e-d-k-o-l-b my username is Frederick0702. You can also follow me on Twitter if you would like. That's Fred the German, although I really don't tweet all that much anymore. So if you're looking for my opinions, I'm afraid you will have to go elsewhere. Twitter is usually not the place to be for that anymore. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, well. Uh, Daniel, uh, it's Felonious Funk on Letterboxd, correct? Yep, and I write now for Disappointment Media. You will mostly see me probably reviewing direct-to-video stuff. 
um, because that's that's what I want to do. I think that even when I have my pick of the litter, I'll probably end up going for whatever. Like this this month, we got three William Kaufman movies, who's one of the like more notable DTV directors. I get to be doing I'm going to be doing one of those reviews shrapnel uh, coming soon. There you go. You need to get back on Twitter, though, so you can start promoting your work. I mean, you know, and you know, tweet everything. Uh, you know, it seems like a bad time to, like, finally start using <laughs> that, that, Twitter. That, 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 a very fair point. As usual, I'm Josh Chernovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-I on both Twitter and Letterboxd. Podcast Twitter is at RewindMoviePod. Podcast emails RewindMoviePod at gmail.com. Uh, coming up next on the podcast, uh, we will have episodes on these two little movies that I don't think anyone has really talked about, but, like, we're covering them, Barbie and Oppenheimer. So uh, stay tuned. Oh, what are, for what are those about? A, a bomb, you know, that never that no one really knows about. I don't I don't think it ever really made much noise like literal or figurative. Yeah, but, I've never know, heard of it. So I don't, I don't know. So, you know, well, we will see. We will see. But uh, I you know, someone's got it. Someone's got to do the hard work of covering the stuff no one's talking about. So I want to thank Fred and Daniel for joining me. I want to thank everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.